Please turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. As we've gone through the book of Exodus, we have seen uh, the building of the tabernacle, the tent in which God was to be worshipped. God uniquely manifested his presence in the innermost sanctuary, the holiest of all of the tent. Moses was given instructions how to design this when he received the Ten Commandments, the same basic time he's given these instructions. God's purpose in this was to keep up a lively interaction between himself and his people. He wanted to dwell with them. But while he draws near, it's important that they understand his holiness and that adequate impressions of his holiness be given at the same time, lest they become careless and forget that important aspect of his character. So a priesthood is established. Uh, to inculcate uh, this. And uh, God introduces the priesthood. He arranges uh, the service that they render so as to give an awful sense of his majesty and his holiness. The central figure of the priesthood was the high priest. Uh, He was taken from among men, not an angel, but to offer sacrifices on behalf of men. He was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, as the Old Testament prophecy said. The choice of the high priest is mentioned first in chapter 28, verse 1, where... God says to Moses, Take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. That was the first qualification necessary that God choose this person. In uh, the book of Hebrews, when this is being commented on in the New Testament, the writer says, For no man taketh this honor unto himself. But he that is called of God, even as Aaron was. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ was appointed by his father to be a priest forever and to be the high priest between God and man. Then you have the clothing of the high priest mentioned in verse 2. Thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. In verse 4, these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod, a robe, a broadered coat, a mitre, a girdle. They shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. The breastplate is called the breastplate of judgment. Verse 15. Thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work of gold, of blue, of purple, so on. This breastplate uh, was attached to 
a short jacket, sleeveless jacket, called an ephod, which was made of uh, fine linen and embroidered. The breastplate also was made of that. It was a linen thing, but it had in it 12 stones, 12 jewels, precious stones. And engraved on each of these stones was the name of one of the tribes of Israel. It was called the breastplate of judgment, or because God would give his judgment, his guidance about some issue, when the high priest would inquire, God, what do you want us to do in this situation? And God would say, do this or do that, through this breastplate. In the breastplate, inserted in the linen, was what we call Urim and Thummim. Now, what those were, we don't know. Uh, the term means lights and perfections. But through this, in some way, God would say yes or he would say no. Shall we go up and attack the Philistines? God would indicate when it would be inquired of through the breastplate. So it's called the breastplate of judgment. Maybe it was some way of casting lots. We don't know. The breastplate was suspended from the shoulders of the high priest by chains of gold, and on each shoulder was another precious jewel, and engraved on each of these shoulder stones were the names of six of the tribes, six on one shoulder, six on the other. These were to be a memorial to the Lord. In verse 12, it says, Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. Not that God needs reminding, but by the sight of their names, whenever the high priest came into the presence of the Lord, uh, as symbolized there in the holiest of all, so to speak, he reminded God that he had a people in this world, that he had covenanted to be a God to them, and they needed him, and they needed his protection and his provision, and the high priest was reminding God of this by having these names of the tribes on his shoulders and on his breastplate. Of course, this pictured what Jesus Christ is doing for us, for one thing, and what he's doing in us, for another. What he's doing for us. In Hebrews 9.24, when this is commented on, it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, the earthly tabernacle, which are the figures of the true." but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, what he's doing for us. On his heart are the names of all of his people. And when he goes into the presence of God for us now, he's at the right hand of the Father. This speaks of, of him uh, reminding the Father of us and of how dear we are to him. He knows his sheep by name. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. He calls them out by name. Not one of them will perish. On his shoulders, the seat of power, he carries his people before God. And the father cannot look on his son without being reminded of his people. The fact that they were precious stones, jewels, speaks of how precious you are to God the Son and God the Father. He didn't choose granite, he chose jewels. The poet put it like this, 
Behold those jewels on his breast, each as a signet graved, close to that bosom warmly pressed, lie those by Jesus saved. And thou art saved, whoe'er thou art, if Jesus has thy willing heart. Your jewel for him. What he does for us and what he will do in us, he will give his judgment to us. The meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. He will guide. On uh, his robe, at the bottom of his robe, he had pomegranates and little silver, uh, little golden bells. In verse 34, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the hem of the robe round about. These would tinkle and give out sweet signs as the high priest moved around in the tabernacle. When he was in that holiest of all where no one else could go, if he didn't use the right approach, he would be smitten dead. Lightning would come out of that Ark of the Covenant and he would be smitten dead. How would we know if he's dead or alive? There would be periods of silence when he went inside, but then suddenly you'd hear the tinkle of bells and you knew that the high priest was moving about. The bells gave off sweet sounds. Jesus' voice, his word, is sweet to his people. And his word produces fruits of righteousness in his people. On his head he had a plate of gold, a miter of gold. Verse 36, Thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. Verse 38, It shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. Well, it's necessary that the high priest be holy. Of course, he was a sinful man, like we are. And so, he would have to offer offerings for his sin, as we'll see in a minute. But our true high priest, Jesus, is not sinful, and uh, he was holiness to the Lord. And when you and I bring our hallowed things, when we make gifts, when we give our money, when we give our time, when we give in anything... Our gifts are still contaminated by our sin. Did you ever do any perfect act? Of course not. When you help a person who's down and out, is that perfect? No. No. Uh, we're, I, remember, I remember being in a nursing home one day and uh, one of, visiting one of our ladies and she mentioned a lady across the hall who uh, was losing her eyesight and had no family, no friends. And she said, maybe you could go visit her. So I said, sure. So I went over and talked to her and had prayer with her and mentioned that uh, she could still read some. And I would send her the newsletter from the church and so on. And we could have some people visit her. And this thought came through my head. Maybe she'll send the church some money. Isn't that an awful thought? Sin. Just, I said, where did that awful thought come from? 
out of my sinful heart. That's where it came from. There's nothing that I do that isn't contaminated by me. And so even my best efforts to serve the Lord need atonement. And yet they are acceptable through Jesus Christ. You notice what it said in uh, verse 38. It shall be upon Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. It shall always be upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Our gifts to the Lord, our efforts to serve him are acceptable even though contaminated through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He removes the sin in a sense and makes it acceptable. Well, we have the clothing, we have the choice, and you have the consecration of Aaron to this office. Chapter 29, verse 1. This is the thing thou shalt do unto them to hallow them, to minister unto me in the priest's office. He was to wash, or be washed, in verse 4. Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle and wash them with water. They needed to be cleansed if they're going to serve the Lord. Uh, his clothing was to be placed on him in verses 5 and 6. Thou shalt take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the breastplate and so on. Uh, in verse 7, thou shalt take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And only as we are filled with the Spirit of God can we serve God. And the great high priest would be the anointed one who is given the spirit without measure. The word Messiah means anointed one. The word Christ means anointed one. Christ would receive the spirit to equip him to do his office as the mediator and as the high priest between God and men. When that oil was poured out on the head of the high priest, it would run down over his shoulders when Christ was given the Spirit, he then takes the Spirit and bestows it on us, his body. Uh, his cleansing by offerings, in verse 10, Thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock, and thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord, and shall take of the blood of the bullock and put it on the horns of the altar, and so on. Aaron and his sons were sinful, so they needed atoning for themselves. And they would put their hand on the head of this animal and confess their sin over the head of the animal, symbolically transferring their guilt to him. Then he had to die because that's what we deserve for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Uh, then that blood is presented to God, and they are forgiven. And then they would make atonement for the people. Uh, Part of this uh, consecration, they were to be sprinkled with blood. In verse 20, Thou shalt kill the ram and take of his blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, the temple of the right ear of his son, the thumb of their right hand, the great toe of their right foot. If we're going to serve the Lord, we have to have the members of our bodies dedicated to him, cleansed and anointed. Uh, New Testament says... Don't yield your members, such as your tongue, your eye, your ear, your hand. Don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness unto God, as those who are alive from the dead. Don't let uh, sin use any of the members of my body. 
but dedicate them to the Lord. My eyes, my tongue, my feet. Well, we see the choice and the clothing and the consecration. What were the common, common occupations of the priest, of the high priest? What did he do? In uh, chapter 30, we find that one thing he did was to superintend the lamps, to make sure that the lamps burned brightly in the sanctuary. Remember, you had the, the seven-pronged golden lampstand in that holy place. And the high priest would go in and tend that. In the book of Revelation, there's a picture of the glorified Christ as he appears to John. John has a vision of Christ in all of his glory with his eyes like flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze and his hair white. And, uh, and he's walking among the lampstands, seven lampstands. And it says those seven lamps are the seven churches. Those represented churches of John's day, but they represented the whole church throughout the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And Christ, the true high priest, tending those churches, tending those lamps. We're to let our light shine out in the world. And as he addressed those different churches, he would say right to the church of Ephesus, I know your faith, and I know your, your perseverance and your, your being persecuted, but I also know you've lost your first love. Repent and do first works. Well, he'd write to the church at Pergamum or the church at Laodicea, and he would warn the churches as his eyes took note of what was wrong in those churches. To the church of Ephesus, right. To the church at Briarwood, right. The Lord Jesus is here today, tending his light, and he knows how it is with us. He says, repent and do first works. And he would encourage us. There would be a note of encouragement and there'd be a note of judgment. And he would say to those churches, unless you deal with this wrong thing, I will come and remove your lampstand. You'll no longer be able to effectively serve me. Christ tending his churches, his lamps. He was to superintend the lamps. He was to burn incense. In verse 7 of chapter 30, Aaron shall burn incense thereon, sweet incense, every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn incense. Now, the incense was burned on an altar of incense. Inside the sanctuary, right in front of the veil that separated that holiest of all, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and God manifested his presence in the Shekinah glory, right in front of that veil was an altar of incense, and he would burn incense. But he lit that altar from a live coal off the altar of burnt offering. The altar of burnt offering where that bullock was offered as a burnt offering. That pictured Jesus in his humiliation when he offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Our guilt laid on him. And he underwent the burning wrath of God on the cross. When he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was undergoing the anguishes of damnation. He was burning in hell in his soul, in a sense, for our sins. Well, you were to take a, a live cold off of that, 
the high priest was, and to use it to light the incense, the altar of incense. Incense pictures intercession or prayers going up to the Lord. This altar was crowned. There was a crown around the top of it of gold. This pictures Christ in his exaltation, not his humiliation, at the right hand of the Father interceding for us now. His intercession, what makes it effective, is his atonement. It's based on his atonement. The way it's put in Hebrews 9 is like this. If you may want to turn to Hebrews 9, verse 22. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. The writer here says, if you study those Old Testament ceremonies that God set up, you'll find one basic principle. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness, no remission of sin. That was a basic principle. That's a way of saying, without faith in Christ's blood... There's no forgiveness of sins. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. No other way. That was the great lesson that was being taught there and that Jesus stated in John 14:6. You must come to God through faith in Christ as your lamb who died for your sins. And there is no other approach to God. Without the shedding of blood, no remission of sin. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, but by believing my claims, surrendering his will to me, putting his trust in me as his Savior. That's what that means. And verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. Those Patterns were the earthly uh, altars and the earthly furniture of the tabernacle. They would be cleansed with the blood of lambs. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ took his own blood. That blood that was offered here couldn't really make atonement. It was necessary that there his blood be offered to make real atonement. Uh, verse 25, Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered in the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. They had to keep repeating those offerings because they couldn't really atone. But he would offer himself once and make full atonement once and for all, for all who put their trust in him. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sin away, a sacrifice of richer blood and nobler name than they, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, makes real atonement that the other could only symbolize. Now, 
Look at your bulletin and look at the hymn on the right-hand side of your bulletin. Charles Wesley wrote this great hymn to express what we've been seeing. He's addressing himself, and he says, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray. His dear anointed one, he cannot turn away the presence of his Son. His Spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Abba, Father, Abba, cry. Jesus Christ appearing in the presence of God. And we now can draw near with confidence. Knowing that through faith in him, he is our heavenly father. And we are his children. Another aspect of Christ's intercession for us is brought out in Luke 22, where he tells Peter this, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. Satan has desired to have you. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about a contest before the throne of God. Satan has desired, Satan has put in a request at the throne of God about you, Peter. You don't know about it. This, this transaction is taking place without your knowledge. But it will have shock effects in your life, Peter. Satan accuses you. He's the great accuser. And he says that you're not a true believer. You're a chaff. You're a hypocrite. And he asks liberty from God to prove it, to test you. And demonstrate that you're chaff and not true wheat. He wants to sift you like wheat is separated from the chaff. But I prayed for you. I put in a request also. I interceded. And I didn't request that you not be tested. Faith has to be tested to show that it's real and to develop it. But I prayed that your faith fail not. Boy, there were shock effects. Peter fell, but his faith didn't fail. And he got up and he went on and he repented and he served the Lord. Why? I've prayed for you. Why haven't you gone back to your old ways? Why haven't I gone back to my old ways? One reason is Jesus Christ is praying for me. You know, it, it thrills me when you tell me you pray for me. When you tell me that, I can just hug you. I'll do that. Next time you tell me, I'll just hug you, okay? Suppose you said, Frank, did you know that uh, Billy Graham was over in your office right now and that uh, he's praying for you and he prays for you regularly? I said, Billy is over there? Boy, I'd get excited. Billy prays for me regularly. But that's nothing compared to the knowledge that Jesus Christ prays for me and prays for you. And his Father hears him 
and answers him. Isn't that exciting? Uh, we see here the common occupations of the priest, what he was doing, tending those lamps and interceding at the right hand of the Father. What are the implications of having a high priest? Look at Hebrews 4, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Notice the affirmation, what we have. We have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God. Notice where he is. He's passed not into the earthly tabernacle, but into the heavens, right into the presence of God. Notice what he's like. He is approachable. Verse 15, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands when you struggle. He knows what it's like to be depressed. Remember what he said? My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. He knows about poverty. He knows those things. He cannot but be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He is approachable. We have such a high priest. What are the implications? Notice the exhortation. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. You hold fast to Christ and to Christianity. Matthew Henry puts it like this. He says, let us hold fast as the enlightening doctrine of Christianity in our heads. You hold to those great basic truths of Christianity. That Jesus Christ was God become man. That he died an atoning death. That he rose from the dead. That he's at the right hand of the Father with the reins of the universe in his hand. That one day he will return and there will be a judgment day. And there will be heaven and there will be hell. And there will be eternal separation. And he alone is the way of salvation. That's Christianity. Nothing else is Christianity. Those are the basics. If you're going to hold fast to Christianity, to our profession, you hold fast to those things. And people may call you a narrow, bigoted fundamentalist. You say, praise the Lord. I believe the fundamentals. Amen. Hold fast to that. Hold fast to the enlightening doctrine of Christianity in our heads and to the enlivening principles of it in our hearts the open profession of it on our lips and our practical and universal subjection to it in our lives, part of holding fast is obeying Him. Hold fast. And then notice the second thing he says in verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A throne of grace it's not a throne of lightning where I approach and lightning leaps out and burns me up like it ought to, cast me into hell. But it's a throne of grace. God is reconciled through the blood of Christ when I come to him through Christ. Draw near to the throne of grace to obtain grace, his power to help in time of need, when I'm needy. The Amplified New Testament says, 
to obtain appropriate help and well-timed help coming just when we need it. We have, uh, we had a homosexual in our congregation some time back who contracted AIDS. And in the middle of that, he really turned to the Lord and he really got converted and he really received Jesus Christ and his life really changed. But it was a battle. He faced discouragement. He faced temptation. But he went to that throne of grace. He wrote me a letter. I'm really studying how to walk obediently, especially in the area of my sexuality. I know it is to be a, it is to be a gift of God, but I consider it a curse sometimes. I'm trying to get a grip on Romans 6 to 8. I know that I don't have to sin. But sometimes when I'm really tired or down, the old thoughts come flooding in, and I hate it. God has given the victory, but I want to learn to walk consistently. And I'm holding on to the Lord to change my orientation and on. Notice what he's doing. He's going to the throne of grace to obtain grace to help in time of need. And he did find grace to help. He's with the Lord today in heaven. Tony Campolo and some students went to the Dominican Republic where they worked as missionaries, but they noticed that a lot of the land there that the, that the uh, Gulf and Western Corporation had was used to grow sugar and not food that was really needed. Some of the best land was used to grow sugar, so they decided they'd do something about it. And they came back, 11 students and him, and they each bought one share of stock in Gulf and Western so they could go to the annual stockholders meeting, and they raised cane. What are we doing that down there for? They didn't get very far. They went back and they went before the throne of grace. They said, let's try another approach. Let's ask God to move in those people's hearts. A year and a half later, they got a phone call from one of the executives. They said, tomorrow we're going to have a press conference. And part of the reason we're holding the press conference is to make an announcement about some of the issues you discussed with us. We want you to be among the first to know what's going to happen. The executive told them they were going to announce that Gulf and Weston was going to test the soil and determine which could be used to grow food. That land would be shifted from the production of sugar to the production of food for the people there. Secondly, the company would make a commitment to build 40,000 new housing units for the sugar workers so they'd no longer have to live in the slums. Thirdly, they would provide educational programs and health programs. They were committing $100 million to this project. Grace to help in time of need. Come boldly before the throne. Well, we want to tell others of the high priest. You read in Numbers where on one occasion as the people rebelled against Moses, that a plague went out and began to mow the people down. And Moses turned to Aaron and he said, he said, uh, quick, a plague has gone out from the Lord. Run, get the censer and go into the midst of the people. Aaron took the censer with a live all, uh, uh, coal off of that altar, burnt offering, and he put incense, and he rushed into the midst of the people, and the plague mowed down row after row until it got to Aaron. At Aaron, it stopped, and all behind Aaron was safe. There's a plague that's gone out in this world that's mowing down people. You and I have the censor. We have the gospel. And we rush into that dying crowd, taking the gospel, taking the true high priest, so they can get behind him be saved from the plague of sin and death. Of course, if you're not a Christian, you have the plague, but you don't have a high priest. 
You need Jesus Christ as your high priest. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, if you have been wavering in your profession, remember you have a high priest. Hold fast. Hold fast your walk with him. Go boldly before the throne of grace to obtain grace to help in time of need. Are you discouraged? Are you tempted? Downhardened? Need help? Go boldly. You have a great high priest. People around us are being mowed down by the plague. We need to go to them with our gospel censor. If you're not a Christian, you need the high priest. You have the plague. Pray right now in your heart. And surrender your will to him and put your trust in him. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for offering yourself and being the high priest. Lord, I need cleansing and changing. I surrender my will to you and I trust you to be my high priest. Come into my life. Amen.